Hi, I'm Jason Bradford. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town, where the sanest guy around is protesting the local gas station in the San Jose. The topic of today's episode is runaway money, and please stay tuned for an interview with Nate Hagans. Did I ever tell you about the time where I had to spend five nights sharing a bed with a six foot nine guy? <laughs> no, I thought that was Jason's story. <laughs> no, Jason's story, if I recall correctly, is he was up on top of a mountain and he was spooning with two guys. Okay, yes. that's right. Okay, so this is similar, but let's let's hear your By the way, story. That's a callback, you know, <laughs> yeah. to season one, maybe. I don't remember when yeah. we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta be careful. You know, we're getting old. We could be repeating ourselves over and over, and we wouldn't even know it. <laughs> as long as it makes us laugh, who yeah. cares? No, so I was I was uh, traveling around Europe. I was uh, backpacking with a friend of mine who happens to be six foot nine, and we we're staying in some hostel in in I think southern France or something. Wow, and southern France must be nice. Ooh la la, yeah. And our money got stolen. Oh no, our passports, all our cash got stolen, and we were just like up shit creek. The only thing we had left was a credit card that I had. Okay. And I was able to get a little bit of money out of a bank machine with that. And so we had to we had to take a train back up to Paris to try to get our passports reissued. And we had to wait five days or something like that until like, the passport could be renewed. <laughs> so you're like uh, scrounging out of the train dumpster trying to get... Yeah, how do you survive what? in Paris without money for five days? We had just a little bit. So yeah. we, we found a hotel that was the scuzziest <laughs> fucking place I've ever probably stayed. Where was it? Oh, it was just some, like the Latin some weird yeah, n- neighborhood in, in Paris. It was, it was this place where they had, they had carpets, disgusting carpets, but there were holes in the floor yeah. of the, the hotel room. And you didn't know where they were. You no. like step, and your foot would <laughs> kind of go. And you didn't fall all the way through because, thank God, there was this carpet. Right. But you were always like ready right. for a surprise, right? Wow. And we could only afford this like one room, so so Seth and I would have to sleep in this bed together. It was really hot. It was summer, <laughs> right? This guy's huge. I'm getting nine. elbows in my face. And all we did was we could only afford to buy like baguettes. So we we ate bread for like five days. Nice. nice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you're talking about difficulty with uh, with money and, and your inability to... I'm talking about difficulty sleeping with a 6'9 <laughs> guy. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to still interpret it my way because I want to I tell you a story with a, with a little bit of a money problem. Okay? Check this out. So I'm a little kid and we used to every summer go on vacation in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. This was like highlight of the year for me. I loved going there. Uh Adventure, you know, the Outer Banks, that's where you got the Wright Brothers and Blackbeard the Pirate and, and the Lost oh. Colony, all this history. Warm water. Yeah, warm water. We'd go fishing, catch these awesome flounder and speckled trout and stuff and, and go ride the waves, all that. So the whole trip was, like I said, a highlight, except except for the drive to get there. So the way we would do this is uh, my dad would go to work on Friday, but he would come home early so he'd only work half a day, and then we'd load up the car, and we'd take off, and we could only get about halfway there, because it was like a 10 to 12 hour drive. Mm. And my family was not like a van family. We had like a Toyota Corolla, which... Oh, so you didn't have one of those like station, station wagons with no. the seats in the back? No, no. This was uh. 80s like little sedan, and uh, me and my sister crammed in the back seat. 
And it was a, it was just a kind of a miserable drive, and and we'd uh, typically get to the border of South Carolina, North Carolina, late at night, and and sleep at a Holiday Inn. So we're driving, and I could stomach it because I'm excited to go to the beach. But also, both my parents were smokers. Oh, so, <laughs> and and it was summer, so they'd be like. Keep the keep the windows rolled up while I'm sucking down this uh, cigarette here, and so I'm like just dying in the backseat, literally so, dying. Yeah, yeah. So we get about I think two or three hours into the trip, and I, I my parents start sort of panicking, and I don't know what they're yapping about, but it turns out they left the checkbook at home. And <laughs> the like, checkbook, and they're like. What are we going to do? What are we, yeah, they like pull over and they're like, well, we can't pay for that. We can't pay for that. We can't pay. <laughs> and we turn around and drove all the way back home no. to get the checkbook. No and then way. driving all the way back. Torture. You know, with, of course, Smoking it's later at night, so you got to smoke even more to stay awake, right? Oh, my just, God. That is good. Just horrendous. Like... You know, think think of how easily that problem could be solved. It didn't bring your checkbook. When was the last time okay. you brought your checkbook anywhere? You right. didn't have a I, checkbook. I bring it to the uh, to the grocery store all the time just to piss people off behind <laughs> yeah. me. Right. Well, I only bring the giant sized ones, like you get for winning a golf tournament or something. Right? <laughs> well, I got a story I think is going to beat this one. I'm trying hard. I'm okay. try. I'm pulling. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go to even more an exotic outer banks. Madagascar, baby. Oh. Wow, you guys in your world traveling. I thought I was exotic going up the, uh, the east coast there. So Madagascar, this island off the coast of East Africa. Incredible place. I was there for a month in November of 1997. And I'm in my late 20s at the time. And I'm doing these botanical expeditions. And I'm in the capital, Anatanarivo. And I have to go to the big bank downtown to... Use my traveler's checks. Wow, traveler's yeah. checks. There's a yeah. there's a blast from the past. Oh, yeah. And I have to pull out enough cash to live for three weeks in the wilds of Madagascar, paying my way to get there, buying all kinds of food for an expedition, and then paying porters and, and people to help me along the way, because I'm going to go climb a mountain in the north of Madagascar. Literally, I'm going from about sea level to a about 2,000 meter peak and back down again with like people carrying my shit. Yeah. And so I, I decided, I budgeted, I said, I need $1,500 in cash. The only problem is the largest denomination bill in Madagascar and each bill in Madagascar is huge. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I... It's I, like a towel. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of the checks I was talking about that you yeah. get for winning a tournament. Yeah, and they're beautiful. They're all artsy and, oh, my God, colorful and stuff. But they're gigantic bills, and the largest denomination was worth $5. <laughs> <laughs> so I get 15 So you needed a wheelbarrow. Right. So I go buy myself into this bank, and I write these traveler's checks out, and I like slide it to the teller, and the teller starts counting out these bills. And I... 17 I, hours later. <laughs> I get this giant wad, and I, I've got like a T-shirt on. It's hot. I'm in the trolley. i got like a T-shirt on, and I'm like, oh, God, what do I do? So I just stuff it and I've, into my pants. <laughs> so I look, like, I look like I have a panis, like this huge like <laughs> folds of like my guts are just gigantic well, and, and dis- I, distended. Can I just – can we put a word of, of gratitude out to the porter who not only carried your stuff but had to accept bills <laughs> from out of the 
the front of your oh, pants. God. <laughs> I, I hope you dried them out before paying. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Anyway, everything went well, but it was a little nerve wracking to walk around with that much cash, knowing that like the average Malagasy at the time earned about two dollars a day, right? If you were if they were a wage earner. Yeah. Yeah. They should. Wow. Somebody should have bumped you off. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty conspicuous walking out of that bank. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, Waddling out of that bank. <laughs> Waddling out of that bank. The good thing is that people don't really have to go through these, uh, these uh, let, let's just call them the sufferings of the privileged that uh, three of us experience. Yes, I think that's, that's what I want to talk about today, that our hidden driver for today is money, but not just really, not money per se, but the fact that the barriers to the use of money have just been getting lowered and lowered. It's getting easier and easier to get money and to spend money. Yeah, it's like the spending money used to be running the 110-meter hurdles, but now it's like the hurdles just been cleared away and you just run a 100-meter dash, no problem. Yeah. Or, or you it, drive a 100-meter dash. <laughs> right. Or. It's a lot easier. So, And this, of course, though, you know, is accelerating consumption of goods and services in our economy. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the sort of the the removal of these barriers making easier and easier. But money itself was actually an invention to help remove barriers. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, before that, it was always, you know, barter, right? It was a direct exchange of goods. I mean, I think we were living in tribal communities and it's like, whatever, okay? People are just living in their extended families. But yes, as soon as you get to a situation where you got to trade with another group, right. you have to barter. Right. Yeah. And... You could get things from from far away, but it had to go through all of these exchanges of of goods in order to get to you, right? Yeah. And so the the creation of money allowed people to not actually have to exchange those things. Especially imagine exchanging things that are if you're trying to exchange something that was really valuable, it might be large, heavy, right, cumbersome, whatever. Right. You know what I mean, so money was itself was a removing a removal of a barrier, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. But then, you know, as, as money got invented, it went through all these stages. And we don't want to sit here and go through the, the minutia, the history of money. I actually, uh, in prep for this, read a really nice book by Jacob Goldstein called Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And I would recommend that if you want to do the history of money. I think we'll put a, a podcast episode in here too that reviews in, in the show notes that reviews the history. But there were some things along the way that were dropping these barriers that I think we want to hit. And one of the ones I wanted to bring up is the movement from coins or other things that are made of metal or shells or whatever to, to actual paper money. Mm-hmm. And Goldstein actually has a really nice uh, anecdote in his book. He talks about how Marco Polo, after he went on his uh, adventuring, he wrote his memoir. And in that, he had this story where he's like, Okay, guys, you're not going to believe this shit because this is some crazy shit, but prepare yourself. This really happened. (laughs) Over in China, they were using paper for money. (laughs) Can you believe this? That would be mind-blowing. Right, Right. the concept. So so in Europe, they've been exchanging gold coins, precious metals, right? Heavy and stuff, but they're precious and they have an intrinsic value and they're shiny. And they're like, no, we just use paper. Yeah. Well, and and of course, the, the way this came about is in China, they were using precious metal as well, sometimes not so precious metal like iron. 
And if you wanted to go buy something that was valuable, you know, you basically had to carry an Olympic weight set of iron with you in order to pay for this. That's how people stay fit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, not everybody, uh, you know, is, is all that strong. So, so what ended up happening is you could store your iron or whatever your precious metal in a bank, what essentially became a bank, but with somebody who would then write you a receipt on paper yeah. who said, "Hey, you have this much money," and then. You know, it wasn't very far along from that that people started trading those paper receipts and saying, here, you can have this and now let me have some uh, some food or, you know, an actual uh, good that I want to that I want to consume. Yeah. So paper money, but it's backed by these deposits of of these metals or whatever, these right. precious things in a in a vault somewhere. And. And that, that has stuck with us for a long time. And, and this exchange within your own country is interesting. So the fact that you're within China, they recognize this paper. But if Well, you- I mean, let's, let's go back to what was happening there. I mean, it was uh, basically under threat of death and violence you know, that you – this story in Goldstein's book, he talks about when Kublai Khan was uh, – had invaded and was ruling China and had – saw that this – paper exchange, this use of paper money was working well. And he's like, everyone here will accept this paper money, or we're just going to bury you alive. Right. So it's like, it was, it was imposed. Yeah. Okay. Got it. But it works within that society. But then if you wanted to trade outside the society, I, you know, it, they still used gold. And so I was looking up the Louisiana purchase in 1803. Really? You were in 1803 looking this up? Oh, sorry. No, I was a couple days ago <laughs> okay. um, on the internet. And I was saying to myself, how much was the Louisiana purchase and how did they pay for that? And it turns out the U.S. bought the Louisiana purchases, a lot of ter- not just Louisiana, but a lot of Western territories from France in 1803 because Napoleon was like, I need more money for wars. And gold was what he needed. And the U.S. He, said, He Fine. needed a better battle plan as well, I think. <laughs> but that's another story. He did all right for himself that's, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he, he, he got to retire on an island. Anyhow, it was $11.5 million worth of gold the U.S. had to transfer to France. Now, the logistics of that, it was, was there some complications? So what actually turned out is the U.S. didn't actually put gold that they had in, the, in, in North America on a ship. That was considered too risky. But they, they had sovereign gold reserves in Europe. John Adams figured out how to do this. And so they transferred it from the banks that the U.S. already had money in in Europe into, into the banks that Napoleon wanted them to put so it in. So instead of having put it on a ship, they put it in a, on a carriage or something right. like that. But yeah. it was... 36,000 pounds of gold is what they needed. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of blown away by the $11.5 million. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty you know, good deal. Yeah, you think of uh, like Jeff Bezos, how, how much land could he buy at, at those kind of prices? <laughs> <laughs> it was a few bucks an acre or something at the time. Right. right. Yeah. You know, but I think since that time, there's really been, though, an acceleration of making it easier and easier to create money and to spend money. And one of the big ones was getting off this gold standard, sort of deciding money doesn't have to be represented by these precious metals. Why? We don't have to do this. And this this started happening in the early 20th century during the Great Depression. Now, there were these theories from economists that said, you know, uh, we don't have to be tied to gold, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really then the Great Depression and, and Roosevelt that said, fine, we're not on the gold standard anymore. And that allowed the government to sort of create money 
without having to have more gold reserves. You think about it, to, to expand the money supply bef- prior to this, more gold had to be mined or silver. Silver was a precious commodity. Or, or stolen. Or, or stolen. Yeah, exactly. Or found uh, found in the bottom of uh, ship's holes that had sunk now in the Caribbean. Wait, so just so I'm getting the history right, I don't think Roosevelt took us off the gold standard. It was just that the government basically bought up all the gold. It right? was a kind of a start. It was a process that you know was finished in Nixon era, but it ended up sort of breaking that complete tie to gold right. and and confiscated the gold that people were people were basically making runs on banks and trying to get out gold. Well, and, and people were agitating. I mean, before the Great Depression even hit, people were agitating for this because I think farmers, in particular, were getting hit really hard with. With the gold standard, I think that those those like these are major campaign yeah. platform positions for for candidates, and I also I wonder how much of it also had to do with basically ratcheting up consumption, basically sure. you know allowing people to to purchase more things, more things to be created. You know, for uh, yeah, other. totally. It's an invention because if the barrier is like for the money supply to increase, we need to have more gold in our vaults. It's a little bit absurd if you're in a, you're this in, industrializing economy which has this huge capacity for production, but suddenly it's like, why do we have to go out and mine a bunch of stuff to allow us to do these exchanges well, the, and expand our and, economy? And gold is finite. Yeah, I mean, right. There's only so much gold. It, it's really a psychological game, right? Like you think about the idea of coming off the gold standard yeah. is scary because now you're you if you are sitting on a big pile of cash used to be you could go trade it in for gold, right. which, of course, has value. Yes. That's weird, too, because gold has value because we've we decided attached it has a value. psychological value to yeah. that. Right. right. I mean, maybe it has some more value because it's an interesting metal and well, whatever Well, there's things you could do with gold. I mean, there are... But, yeah. Yeah. but it's, it, it feels like it was a big leap psychologically, was, yeah. but... In reality, it's the same leap that had already been made. So maybe it's not that big a deal. Well, it sort of it, it created a currency that could no longer be traded in. So you no longer could trade in your dollar for gold. That, right. that broke that and it said, no, now it's these central banks, it's the government. Money then was backed by essentially the society in general and the faith that the you faith had credit of a, the, of a well-managed yeah. central bank and financial system. Now, you could exchange that currency for another currency if you're like this government's right you know i'm, I'm concerned it's gonna it's gonna fail it's not gonna be able right to you know hold up to its promises you could buy currency and maybe another another government yes yeah, so that's why governments can't just hyper and you know just create all the money they want because then they get hammered in the in the exchange market for a currency trading yeah. Well, you're talking about money creation. I think there's another really important barrier that was removed around how money is created. Uh, most people think of money creation as happening in, uh, you know, some federal printing press office somewhere. And, you know, some money does get created that way. Coins get minted, bills get printed. But most money comes into the economy when banks loan it into existence. And the way this used to work is uh, if I'm a commercial bank, I'm accepting deposits from the public. They're bringing them in and I'm allowed now to loan out a fraction of that. That's called uh, the fractional reserve rate tells me 
how much money I'm allowed to loan out based on how much I've got sitting in the reserves. In but it's bank. actually a multiple, so it's like right. You know, say the way. Yeah, so it's, a, okay. it's a you can loan out like ten times what you've got on deposit or something. Right, and it, it used to be yeah a, a relatively small reserve rate, and over time that's that's been getting chipped away, chipped away at. Now, banks, there is no fractional reserve rate. If a bank wants to make a loan, it just makes a loan. And how does it do that? It just says, oh, I just put money in your account. Where did yeah. that money come from? Right. So Nowhere. The, the banks basically are looking at, like the local banks are looking at what the central bank is doing to set the interest rate, the base interest rate. And then it's also looking at if someone walks in, are they credit worthy? Do I think that they're going to be able to pay it back? And they make that judgment call. So. Yeah. And, and what and, kind of collateral they may have. And this may be obvious for some people, but it may not be. And that is that when banks create that money, these are debt-based. This is debt-based currency, right? So yeah. they're loaning it into existence. And that debt needs to be serviced, right? There's an interest on it. So you have to return the principal of what you borrow plus the interest right. on top of that, yeah. which you know, we can get into. But it reminds me of another... Well, a couple of other barriers have been removed. One of them actually has to do with computer technology. I mean, very little of the money that's in circulation right now is actual paper money, right. let alone, you know, coins or whatever. Except in know. Jason's case where his right. panis he is still has, filled with <laughs> yeah. bills. I, I still find a bill now and then. I mean, yeah. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to wash your clothes sometimes. He's, he's paying at restaurants with that money. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't changed clothes since 1997. Um so being able to actually have storing ones and zeros right. on computers, basically, and, and loaning money into existence electronically. Yeah, a lot easier know. than writing it in a ledger and yeah. having to file that. <laughs> I mean, so forget the checkbook. Now forget anything. I mean, you don't need any anything. It's just all you know stored on a computer somewhere. Another one I think is that's interesting, maybe not thought about very much, is – and this this also happened because – We've seen with financial crises, banks being unable to to pay out, right? There's a run on the bank. People are asking for their money because there's a lot of uncertainty in the economy or the financial system. And banks can't do that, right? Because they were loaning out more more than they had. Then the government has stepped in, and now we've got federal insurance, right? right. So, you know, you're insured up to, what, $250,000 of money that you have in the bank. And so the government's, in a sense— saying, go for it, banks. Yeah, loan this loan stuff it out. out. Right. It reduces you know, like, the risk for a bank exactly. to, to, to kind of extend more credit than it probably should. I, I remember seeing the scene in Mary Poppins where there's the run on the bank. It's like the little kid. He wants to. He doesn't want to give his tuppins up. And his dad's like, come on, give the tuppins. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And, and then everybody's like, they're not, they're not giving him his money. And a big run on the bank. And I didn't have one clue what was going what on in that going scene on? when I saw it. <laughs> Did they start dancing? Probably no. and singing and then they jumped into a sidewalk and uh, yeah. Yeah, floated to the ceiling. But, but I think that was written by an author who grew up during the Depression or something. That's yeah. what the deal was. So, the, yeah. um, the other thing about the government, just to point out, is, is regulation of money. Well, first of all, I mean, we've given the, the right to print money to, to banks, to central banks. It's not actually government doing it. That's one thing. But the other is our regulations are the policies that we have, the laws that we have on the books, you know, and it, it was, again, I think in a reaction to the to the Great Depression, we said that banks that wanted to invest money and, and commercial banks that were loaning money out had to be separate. And 
And then we did away with that. So um, you're talking like the difference between, say, a Goldman Sachs as an investment bank that's doing deals for buying and selling companies and stuff like that versus a commercial bank that's taking deposits from the right. public and making and, loans, and making to small loans. And yeah. Things. And so that, you know, that was, uh, you know, Glass-Steagall uh, was, was this landmark legislation we had to kind of separate these things. And then we just decided, ah, fuck that. And we got rid of it. <laughs> and like, like 10 years later. Yeah. Exactly. Boom. Yeah, that was 1999. I think that was. And was it, that the name of the bill? Ah, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. No, they they probably called it something like protecting consumers. Right, you right. know, like yeah, yeah. E- economic bliss bill. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's nice for us to say, "Hey, life is easier now because we don't have to carry travelers' checks around." Or if our parents leave our checkbook, is who cares? They've got credit cards. Another and their ATM will work in any bank, right? And that's a nice convenience for us. But I also would acknowledge that for some people, this has been revolutionary. There's parts of the world, you know, outside the major cities, outside highly developed countries with, 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 with big banking systems, where they really didn't have access to banking services until quite recently. Where if you're in a rural village somewhere, and Kenya is a good example, they developed a system called the M-Pesa, which allows people from their cell phones to basically do banking, to deposit money, to send money, to accept payments. And, um, and imagine how that changes somebody's life. And you, you don't need to be a big player. You know, it's all like this micro credit system. Well, you know, like any of the things that the three of us tend to dive into, it's always a mixed story. So, you know, the, the removal of barriers has definitely some positive things going on for a lot of people and some negative things. I mean, like, you know, you were talking about the repeal of, of Glass-Steagall Act and and how that uh, maybe ended up freeing up a lot of money to be invested into places where maybe it shouldn't have been. And like fracking. Yeah, so you get like the fracking boom out, <laughs> right. of, out of something like the that. the housing crisis. And then, you know, Jason, you're talking about people in... Uh, living in a rural setting, being able to maybe access some really important services they need. So uh, there's always nuance. And I, I know, Cher, you often talk about the messy middle that we we sort of inhabit and try to try to wrestle with. And I think that's one of the things that we keep revisiting. If you're thinking in systems, if you are exploring how the world works, you you come back to realizing, wow, there's a lot of complex systems at play and and there are benefits in some cases and, and costs I, in others. I am going to be glass half empty for a second, though, about this, because I, I, this is just a, a theory I'm speculating. The motivation to remove barriers and to enact those, the, the removal of those barriers, I think, often comes from people who have money <laughs> and want to make more money, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's it's wonderful when you open up opportunities for exchange to happen, for people to borrow money, like a, a small business right. to borrow money, or imagine somebody who's doing something that's that is very much geared towards addressing sustainability crises that we talk about. You know, being able to borrow money in order to do that is is a positive. But there is something that happens when these rules change, these barriers are removed, that seems to benefit those who already have yeah those uh those bills in congress that pass there 
usually from they're usually authored by guys who are funded by those corporations, by those banks. I mean, you know, not not to get overly cynical, but you know, you can buy some pretty good legislation these days. Well, and you see, going back to to fracking, for example, you you could see like the role of these investment banks who would help tout these fracking companies you know, their their value to try to get investors to come in. They make money off of those. The transactions. Yeah, when they're putting out a corporate bond or something like that to raise money to go drill in North Dakota or whatever, the banks that are, are facilitating that are making money off of all those transactions. Yeah. And then when those companies go bust because they're completely over leveraged, they're totally in the red on, on cash flow, then they get acquired by the large oil companies, right? And then the banks are making money off of that transaction as well, right. you know? And so there's a gaming of the system I just want to point out. I yeah, think, well, that- they're creating all these services, and anytime you create services, you could charge for them. And so, you know, I think in some ways, some of these services you could say, for like a lot of consumer level, been quite nice, and maybe our cost has lowered. But again, also what they've done is they've, They've packaged all this big money that is being flung around the world and maybe doing a lot of damage as well. So, yeah, I think it's these barrier removals are really a mixed bag. But, you know, I can't say there's a mixed bag with cryptocurrency, though. I think it's all <laughs> shitty. And so I want to talk about that because that's a barrier that's been removed recently where it's like the, you know, the libertarians, which, you know, I'm not totally anti libertarian in any means. I understand, you know, civil liberties and, and, and individual rights. Fine. But, they're so anti-government that they just they want to they want a money system that is not tied to government and not tied to banks, which I kind of get. But what they did was they created this monster where these computer networks are just churning out these cryptocurrency tokens with an enormous amount of energy use. But this this whole topic of cryptocurrency. Drives me kind of nuts. I don't. I don't want to sound like the old man who just doesn't understand anything. But uh, <laughs> you know, like this blockchainy, uh, and that's related to Dick Cheney probably. But the, the, you know, like the blockchain, the the NFTs, the way Bitcoin algorithms work. I I just don't get it. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a classic example of maybe good intentions, interesting idea, maybe some of the motivation for some people. Is comes from the fact that they maybe want to democratize in a sense. Yeah, they don't want to have to go through these intermediaries or right. you know counting on these banks or, or governments. Right. But and then it, be careful what you and it's a wild west right now. I think that yeah. we're also seeing and people are are trying to figure out how to. We're, we're quite a few years in them. though, right? I mean, Bitcoin came. It's out. still a while. I mean, there how many cryptocurrencies are out there? Do you there's, know what I mean? there's hundreds, but there's like a handful of really big ones that dominate. And sure. and if you were to look at the energy use of those, it adds up to tens to hundreds of terawatt hours per year of electricity consumption. And, no, and no, no we, one knows for sure because how efficient are the computers on each of these networks? We, it's hard to tell. We talk about energy pretty often on this podcast, yeah. but I, terawatts, like what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about like the, the energy consumption of fairly significant nation states. So on the, the lower bound, so, we're talking, you know, maybe like a, a Kuwait. Okay. Or, so let me, let me back this out a little. So you're saying to create a cryptocurrency, you know, the, the computers that are running in the background to make that happen. Yeah. We're consuming 
as much I, electricity as I think you got to back it up even further, which is for people who are not familiar with cryptocurrencies, like they they need to have some kind of value. So what they're doing is that they're they're actually what's called mining, yeah. right? And I guess they're doing these these really complex equations or something. Well, it's like not. That. So they're they're actually doing random number generation. So there's an algorithm which is a secret algorithm which generates a random number, and the computers have to guess. And if they match it by chance, they win, and they get to add to the blockchain and they get a token. It's crazy. It was just like literally random number generation. Somebody just came up with this random way of being able to create this money. And they have to make it hard because by making it hard, by doing a lot of work, there's value. But of course, it's not adding any value to the the world. And that value comes from computers churning this stuff, which consumes electricity. It 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 reminds me of like playing Super Mario Brothers, where Mario is running and he jumps and smashes the bricks and then a coin goes into his... uh, (laughs) That'd be a lot easier. Why don't we do that? Can we make it a video game instead of a a, a math problem? But, you know, there's, there's 200 nation states on the planet. And right now, these cryptocurrencies are in the top 50, you know? Maybe the top 30 in terms of like if they were ranked cryptocurrency energy use. And they're growing exponentially. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's like, you know, you extrapolate very far. And it's like, oh, it's the size of India or the United States in terms of energy consumption. It just gets absurd so fast. It's awesome. Pretty soon we'll we'll all be uh, like shivering in the dark, but there will be a lot of Bitcoin lying but, around out there. But let's be clear. <laughs> it's not even energy consumption. That's just electricity consumption. Yeah. You, we're not counting into that, the sort of full life cycle of this, no. because all the, the servers, the computers that need the to hardware. be... hardware. Yeah. And the disposal of the waste. Now, there's cryptocurrency farms. It's like, well, we bought these eight years ago, and now, you know, ah, too slow. Buy a new set, <laughs> and they just e-waste. So they're destabilizing electric grids, and they're destabilizing, of course, the the computer manufacturing industry is now having trouble keeping up with other demands. And it, and it gets... Not to make this more complicated, but like, so on the on one level, you could look at this as like, this is a craze. Like, why is this growing so fast? Why is why is this happening? Do you know what I mean? Why are people uh, motivated to 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 get cryptocurrency instead of whatever? And I think a lot of it is this is a speculative market, right? Yeah. These are these are growing in value. There's a limited amount of them, yeah. right? When things look either uncertain economically, yeah. They they're don't worried trust, about don't trust government. Yeah, they don't trust government. They're worried about you know the solvency of whatever. Or we have a situation that gets really complicated with monetary policy. But if interest rates are really low, it doesn't make any sense to save money, right? right? Because if you put money, I mean, we grew up saying, you know, put your money in a savings account. Grandma's you know birthday yeah. money that penny you need saved is a penny earned exactly. this year. You know, will slowly grow over time. Like no, now you're actually fucking losing money because. <laughs> The interest rate on a savings account is like negative 12%. It's not really, but it's less than, than inflation. So, right? so, so people I, are trying to make money out there. You yeah. realize if you were putting together the book of pithy sayings on money, you know, it used to be a penny saved is a penny earned. But in a shares book, it would say, no, you're fucking losing money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. Yeah. Well, and I know what, from experience, right. by the way. But that's that's what's happening right now is that the people that have money are like scrambling to find something to do with it. And the problem is there there don't seem to be any productive outlets. It's right. just this fucking around with shit. So this, uh, to me, this gets to 
I mean, we're talking about this a little bit. And, you know, what's what's the problem with all of this? The, you know, these the removal of these barriers. Like, well, what's really the the consequence here? You talked a little bit, Jason, about sort of the energy consumption of cryptocurrency, right. for example, right? But what are you know what are the other issues? Well, that that's that's a really good example of what's happening when you talk about okay, the barriers are being removed, and that means there's more and more and more money available, and that money can grow exponentially uh, without bounds, right? Because it's not tethered, it's tied to anything. It's not tied to anything real. And we've essentially said we're we're all behind this. We agree that it has value. It doesn't, even cryptocurrency is that way. I mean, a Bitcoin has value because we believe it has value. So you can have money growing exponentially. And, And a lot of times you think, oh, well, that's wealth. Like, you know, Jason, when you walked out of that Madagascar bank and you had a wad of cash, you're like, Look at you know people. He's wealthy. He's got he's got that that yeah. panis of doom. <laughs> and, uh, but but the, the reality that's not wealth. That's a claim on wealth. That yeah. you can use that to actually get real things, real yeah. goods, real services in the real world. Oh yeah. And if people didn't accept that claim, they, they it stopped being something that yeah. people agreed upon. It'd only be what would it be good for you could you could burn it like yeah. people did in Germany. You could you, could you know, keep the 20s, his, you could wipe your ass with it. Like right. what else what you, else can you, you do? You could keep it? his his uh, waistband warm, I guess, or whatever. But <laughs> well, I've seen this in action. Like I I was aware of a uh, some a, a deal like several years ago where the Central Bank of Japan created 15 billion dollars 15 billion dollars it's out of thin air the central bank of japan created and then they said it's just an inconceivable number right I mean, and they're 15 like 15 billion dollars yeah. and then they gave it to some bank to go invest and they show up in the u.s and they just start looking around at things like you know what is oh, real estate let's buy u.s real estate so you know they were interested in farmland so i'm just going like, holy crap some some bankers in Japan decide to create $15 billion and then some millions or whatever just start sloshing around to buy farmland in the United States. And we just accept that as like, yep, that's the way the world works. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's $15 billion yen or dollars or whatever. Right. Uh, I want a piece of that. Well, yeah, so the, that's it. It's like you can create this stuff infinitely. It's just like computer spreadsheets or whatever, you know, databases. Like I just created it, Okay. But it has a claim on the real world. There's only so much farmland in the world, but it, you can create as, as much money as you want. And it just it can now start chasing those real world assets. And that's scary. So the people that have the ability to create money then have an amazing power because it, it, it gets accepted. <laughs> that's, I mean, I think we have to unpack that a little bit. I mean, so you create money and it's it, – people think – so when we talk about, for example, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, being the richest person in the world, the wealthiest person, you know, I always think, well, what's the real wealth there? Because a lot of that is just – it's not even paper money, right? Uh, it's stocks. It's, it's made up value. It's, it's an assessed value, right. right? That could never be actually – you know, if they try to sell it all right, right away, you know, probably the price would go down. Who knows? Whatever. It's um, it's not true wealth. Now, they use a you know, portion of their wealth, yeah. of that financial wealth for real wealth. Big-ass fucking houses in Hollywood, sure. buying land. You know, Bill Gates is now the, the largest indi- individual landowner in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you're able to actually get true wealth. Land was always considered the, the real form of wealth out there but that's just a fraction really for them of of that of that claimed wealth that, that they have but 
what happens a lot, actually, and I think that's true probably on a ratio basis more for people who are not as wealthy, is that that money is actually a claim on it's it's used for consumption. Yeah, right away. It's like, actually it. it does translate into real world impact. Yeah, I mean right? with the barriers removed and more money circulating in the economy, you have more consumption. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if 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 you have more to spend, you tend to spend it and and then that ha- does have real world consequences. So I get back to what you were talking about Jason, like Money is there, and then it's chasing real resources. It even gets back to what we were talking about with the fracking boom. You have right. investors saying, where can we buy something that's going to give us something in return? Oh, let's let's build some fracking wells. So structurally, there's a couple things that are very interesting then. We have this ability to create infinite amount of money that makes real claims on a finite amount of goods and services in their actual world. And then, though, also, is that when the money's created— all they create is the principle. So money is this debt. Money, money is creates goes into existence as a loan. Okay, so cash goes into your bank account so you can buy a house, and now you have to pay the bank back. Okay, so there are two sides of the ledger. But when the bank created that money to, so you could buy a house, they only created the principle. They didn't create the interest. But what this means in totality over the over the society as a whole is that in order for you to be able to pay that interest back going forward, the money supply has to increase because there needs to be more money in existence in the future. So there's enough circulating that you can obtain enough to pay back both the principal and the interest. And that's mathematically embedded uh, dependency, structural dependency on growth is in our money system right now. Right. It gets back to growth, which we've talked a lot about. And growth itself gets back to depleting natural resources and, and increasing pollution. Right? Yeah. Well, it, it does have a real world impact. We may have those real world impacts going on, but as long as you have Jason's endless panis, <laughs> we can pay for those no problem. <laughs> I What's interesting for me right now in thinking about this, yeah, is, stop with the panis. I'm just really upset. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, let's all take a moment. Okay. Um <laughs> think about this moment that we're in right now with I don't even know how many millions of people around the world suffering economically. Yeah. You know, in 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 desperate financial situation, building off a lot of I would say we talked a little bit about the inequality issue. I mean, what percentage of of equities, you know, stock financial assets do you think the the top 10% of Americans own. Okay, so you're saying the 10% wealthiest Americans. Yeah, what percentage of like... of All the stock ownership, are they... Yeah. uh, (laughs) 4,000%. You're good at math. I am always the best at these... uh, It's going to be most of it. Yeah, Yeah. it's a lot. Uh, Let's just go with that. Yeah, it's like, it's something like 88%, right? And and the top 1% are over 50%, right? So... um, Where's Robin Hood right now? Yeah. So, so we ha- we've had like this growing inequality in, in the United States and in other places, and that inequality has been driven a lot by by policies that we've had and you know reducing tax rates for wealthy people and all these things and and now we're in a situation where people are are really desperate 
because of the pandemic and the the knock-on effects to the economy and and we've got governments sort of stepping in to try to to bolster the economy and to help people yeah and, just putting money right into your bank account boom fast and, and on the one hand i would absolutely say this is critical right. you know there are just here in the united states there are tens of millions of families who are desperate you know, yeah, we're going to lift people out of poverty. So stimulus checks, you know, yeah. make a big difference. Raising the the rate of unemployment or extending it makes a huge difference. And and there are people who've been arguing again for removal barriers. You know, right. one of the one of the barriers that we've had is this idea of of the debt load, right? right. So governments just can't spend as much as they want, can't go crazy. Although governments have been doing that, and if you look <laughs> at our total debt, it's it's been increasing astronomically but but there's a, always a risk you know if your debt level gets so high will people stop wanting to lend you money yeah you know? or um, your currency gets cr- hammered in the change market so then you can't trade really effectively overseas right right so that's that's been one of these sort of barriers that people have looked to but now we've got you know modern monetary theory which says you know the concern always also was around inflation you right know? and and so there's this school of thought that says, we don't need to be worried about inflation. We've been in a deflationary period for a long time. We don't have to worry about that. We need to just create more money. Yeah. You know, a government you know, should step in and spend a lot of money, yeah. spend money on infrastructure, spend money on climate change, spend money of all, on all the things that we need to. And on the one hand, I would say, hell yes. On the other hand, we have to remember that you put money out there it goes to real things. Right? Yeah, and every dollar spent. There's a, there was a, a paper I read where they calculated like the carbon dioxide emissions per dollar spent. Like you can really, it's 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 correlated by ninety eight percent. You could look at <laughs> the, I, the amount of money that gets spent in a nation and its CO two emissions. It's I, incredible. I think as we move the economy into the virtual world with NFTs, that we can take care of that. We won't. We don't have to worry about it. It's just going to be an information economy. You you and your real world troubles. It's uh, yeah, virtual. We'll spend virtual crypto money in our virtual crypto world, <laughs> eating virtual food, yeah, uh, and drinking virtual hot toddies, <laughs> and you know, curling up to the virtual fire, and then our fingers will freeze off when uh, the, the 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 cold front comes you, through you and need, the pipes you burst. You don't need fingers to spend virtual money in the virtual world. It's fine. Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. You don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. Hey guys, here's a five-star review on iTunes that we got recently. Uh, I'm assuming that's graded on a 10-point scale or something like that, maybe a Mm 30-point. This is from 9blue1. Great names uh, from our reviewers. Nine Blue One says, This is just a fantastic, well produced podcast that allows you to laugh off the darkest, most difficult subjects imaginable. It turns out that at least three of the horsemen are also stand up comics. Just subscribe, put this in your weekly mix. You'll end up smarter, better prepared, and surprisingly more sane. You'll see. So, uh, I, I like that we're the horsemen. 
Yeah. It's kind of embarrassing, embarrassingly nice. I, I know. I know. I, I'm kind of, I'm blushing. God. Yeah. I, yeah. I, my immediate thought was they must be listening to a different podcast. Well, except that uh, as a horseman, you spread death. That's that's, uh, that, that's that's embedded in this really nice positive review. That doesn't make me feel better. Okay. I, I have cowboy boots. What does that have to do with anything? Horse riding. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah. So, hey, if you like the podcast, you should leave us a review as well. You need to be at least as gushing as that review was, or else don't bother. Yes. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> so if society is knocking down barrier after barrier, doing the opposite in your own life could mean actually putting some of those barriers back up. It sounds a little... Um, yeah, just. Just lock yourself in your right. house, right? Well, it's maybe a little uninspiring, but... You know, Alexa, you... don't order the toilet paper for me automatically when I run out. Seriously. I mean, you don't have to put your credit card into uh, every web browser that you find. You don't have to make auto payments so easy. It, it really does help if you have some thinking going on each time you pay for something. Every time there's a little barrier there, it actually makes you a, a bit more circumspect, a bit more thoughtful about what it is you're purchasing and do I really need this thing? So, Interesting. Carrying I, around cash actually <laughs> might make you hesitate. I think there's actually a psychology there. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> like you're having to give up something to get something. So right. I think having some little rules in your life about not making it so easy. And when you do that, you might even have a benefit of protecting yourself a little bit more from identity theft problems too. Yeah. I think there's a lot going on here with currency, a lot of ideas. And I think there's a couple goals we would want to have. You know, if, if, if our problem is we have this globalized economy that always has to grow and the solution is a lo more localized economy that actually has to live within an environmental footprint that's bioregional, boy, there's a lot to unpack there about what the money system would be like to support that. Yeah. I mean, part of it is just like if you can trade favors with your friends and your neighbors and and barter a little bit, that's probably a good thing. But there are also there are some like tools available. So there's a mutual credit system that's very interesting. It was created in Italy. It's now being applied in Wales, where businesses can exchange with the with the kind of credit holder. And so again, it gets over barter because you can provide services and get credit. And then you can receive services from a different company and, 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 and cash that in, in a sense. But you can't exchange it for money. So uh, pretty interesting. It helps focus local economies, helps, helps build local connections that way. David Fleming passed away, but an interesting thinker. He had tradable energy quotas, which is very tied to emissions. And this very gets get back a little bit to our episode on rationing from last season, where if we need to actually descend in terms of our energy consumption, use less energy each year, then this is a way to allocate that fairly. So if you're thrifty, yeah, you can sell your energy quota. But if you're, if you're an energy hog, you have to go buy it. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way of actually reducing the amount of consumption. Those, uh, those Bitcoin miners are going to have to uh, <laughs> gonna have to get some serious energy uh, quotas. Yes. Yeah, so what we're saying is, in a sense, we don't have to go back to the gold standard, but having currency of exchange that was based upon energy yeah. would and be... Totally interesting, you know, because that's, that's one of the big things we do. We just like an energy Godzilla just 
trouncing and, through the world. And that would blow people's minds. Just even the idea of saying, let's have, let's have currency that's based on, on energy. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's such a foreign concept. Well, it makes such good sense, though, because as, as we've noted, nothing happens without energy. So Yeah, I'm just thinking, for us to get to the point where that was actually adopted would be a transformational <laughs> moment in, in our collective understanding of how the world functions and yeah. the importance of energy. Yeah. Right. Well, there's also an interesting idea that was recently popularized by Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future. I read that book. And Sci-fi, right? Sci-fi. This is, this is not like a how to change the banking system book, right? Is- well, in, in that book, it kind of is. It's part of a lot of things he throws out there, these ideas. And it does, it's all about international banking and the big central banks. And they, they, they mint, so to speak, this is all digital, of course, but they, they mint a carbon coin. And the idea is sort of tied to modern monetary theory that, yeah, you can create money for whatever you want. But in this situation, the carbon coin is only minted and given to people who are demonstrating that they're sequestering carbon or offsetting emissions of some kind. Mm-hmm. So that's another interesting way of like, if the tradable emissions quote is about rationing the energy we use, this is about essentially sequestering or pulling carbon out of the atmosphere for projects like reforestation, etc. Last thought for me would be, in terms of thinking about doing the opposite, we talked about MMT and the need to actually support people, the desire to put more money into circulation mm-hmm. to support people to to meet essential needs, which there are many, many people who need them. A lot of that is based on the fact that we've spent decades and decades and decades effectively taking away contributions from the wealthiest. There's been this growing inequality, and they've been paying less and less yeah. into into the coffers of government and and basically the collective need. And so if there's a concern about putting more money into circulation, creating more money and 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 debt in order to to help people meet their needs and that leads to more consumption, we still need that consumption of basic needs for people. But maybe we can we could pay for that by going back to taxing the wealthy the way they Hey, well if all else fails, we're just gonna go back to bartering. Okay, guys. I got two private jets. What do you got to offer me? Oh, uh, I've got a yacht and uh, seven Hummers. All right. All All I have is is Rob's dog. (laughs) You can't barter my dog. (laughs) I'm happy to interview Nate Hagens. Nate as uh, an old friend of mine from the days on the oil drum. He also was a board member of Post Carbon Institute. Today, he is very busy as the co-founder and director of Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future. He used to be in uh, high finance with Lehman Brothers and Solomon Brothers. Then he uh, shifted his focus to understanding the interrelationships between energy and the environment, finance, and the implication of the synthesis has for human futures. He has a master's degree in finance from the University of Chicago and a doctorate in natural resources from the University of Vermont. Okay, well, I am really happy to have you here on the show. Nate, been on the show before, so uh, welcome back. Great to be here, JB. Well, you are now in part of this uh, Do the Opposite segment that we're doing in season three, 
the idea being that if we if what we've been doing up to now hasn't worked, should we do the opposite instead? And what does that look like? So what I want to do though to set up our conversation is to get you up to speed on what Rob, Asher, and I have been talking about in this episode. The episode's about money and what we have gone over are some of the properties of modern currency. And a lot of it related to the idea that we've been using different tools to overcome logistical barriers to using money to exchange goods and services. And that nowadays money is getting you know, easier and easier to create and easier to use. And the downside of this then is that the monetary system now is just sort of part of the overall growth system of the economy. And actually this growth of, of uh, the, the economy and the, the monetary system is actually required for its stability because debt creation, which creates money, also uh, comes with future interest obligations. So we explain all that. And we also explain that while money is created in the virtual world of bank ledgers in an instant with keystrokes, and so it can theoretically grow infinitely, it makes demands on the real world, and this real world is finite. And so there are a lot of ideas out there, for example, in, the, in like progressive political circles about using modern monetary theory to inject money where governments believe it's needed, maybe even bypassing normal banking channels to do some of this. But that doesn't by itself overcome the sort of problem that by boosting demand for real goods and services, we boost consumption in the real world. And it could also cause inflation. So what we then talked to about is that the money system isn't solving some of our main long-term problems, which we you know, consider ecological overshoot. And it is maintaining sort of this you know, stoking growth, business as usual. And so how do we do something different, do the opposite to reduce the ecological footprint of humanity, our material demands on the earth, and maybe use the money system to help sort of reverse course? So anyway, that's kind of a long preamble to get you up to speed. Any initial thoughts on, on that, Nate? Yes, many initial thoughts. Do the opposite. I loved that uh, Costanza Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, it's a real pithy soundbite for our situation because we are evolved organisms in a social species that found a bolus of fossil sunlight. And from ecology perspective we're maximizing power and the issuing of money allows us immediate more access to power than if we didn't issue money. So this is all consistent with our biological heritage. And it's really hard to biologically do the opposite. In my class at the University of Minnesota, the beginning of the human behavior section, I asked the students to think for 15 seconds and share something with the rest of the class that would reduce their standing, reduce their status with the rest of the class. And they all have this horrible look on their face. And Mm -hmm. I don't actually make them do it. But to do things against our wiring is really difficult. And to do the opposite right now, to do the right thing for the environment is almost the opposite thing that would be good for human populations, at least in the near term. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've kicked the can for so long that 50 years ago, we could have done things that made sense and they would have hurt a little bit. Now, the further that we get disconnected financially from the real world, the harder it becomes for anyone to even voice these crazy ideas. 
because yeah. the because it's a big old rip the bandaid off, but it's like a full body cast that we have to take off. Yeah. So, um, so that's my initial thought. Yeah, I think a good example of what you just said was, for example, modern monetary theory. I think is sort of this conundrum, right, of wanting to help out but also maybe causing problems. I have a lot of problems with modern monetary theory. There's a lot of reality to it, but there's a lot of huge glaring flaws. First of all, I think like many economic theories, it uses a money in, energy and materials out lens, where you Mm -hmm. and I and our work has looked at energy and materials in, energy and materials out. Yeah. So we can print money, but we can't print energy. We can only extract what exists faster. So my first point would be that MMT ignores the fact that private banks create over 90% of the money supply. This means that government ultimately has very little control over the amount of of money spent into existence other than by managing interest rates. So if the government wants control, it should turn banking and finance into public utilities like public banks at the municipal, state, and national levels. They don't need MMT. That's my first critique. Secondly, as long as there are surplus resources meaning there's unemployed people and excess industrial capacity, the government can spend as much as it wants. This they get right. But it ignores the fact that ecologically, we're running a major deficit. Right. And so most forms of government expenditure are making that deficit worse. So there is a way around that, potentially. And that's to fund projects like regenerative agriculture, ecological restoration, that would help reduce the deficit. And in that sense, MMT theorists are right. Mm-hmm. So we could we could maybe figure out if so. MMT kind of is in some ways is saying we can expand the money supply, and then it's trying to tie this to these you know these these things that we say we sh- we need to do to to deal with the climate crisis. Let's say so. You're saying it could work in that regard, but is it just that you're worried about spillover into? just creating more money that doesn't get used very efficiently, or it it expands the money supply so much that it spills over into other types of consumption, not just sort of planting trees and restoring wetlands and et cetera. Well, well, that's what's happening now. First of all, let's not forget that right now, as we're recording this, the U S government via stimulus and central bank support is paying for 36% of our national national income. Wow. So 36% of our entire Wages and salaries are covered in this nation by the U.S. government. That is absolutely unsustainable. But the problem is, first of all, and we worked on this last year, is when people were offered to get $600 a week in in stimulus, they're not willing to go back to work to make $700 or $800 a week at some crappy job. They'd rather just sit at home making $600 a week doing nothing. So we have labor shortages on, on the, the lower in, income end, number one. Number two, a lot of this extra stimulus is going into cryptocurrencies and Tesla options and all kinds of carbon intensive things. And I don't think they can really control that. So yes, uh, the ultimate problem, Jason, is you and I and the people that we know can say we should do this and we should have the stimulus go to... Uh, civilian land core or right, right. young farmers. 
And those are good ideas. They're sound ideas. But the other problem with this stimulus is not only is it physically causing the problems that we just discussed, but it's psychologically making people oblivious to the real risks. Like if we hadn't done all this stimulus and we were borderline in another Great Depression after COVID, then mm-hmm. giving giving 25 grand a year to 20-year-olds to go do ecological and community restoration around the country, a lot more people would have said, yeah, that's a good idea. But right now, you know, with the, the sugar high that we're experiencing, no one's thinking about that. Oh, interesting. So, I, I mean, ultimately where I was going with that is we can talk about these great ideas politically. They just aren't happening. The, the political right. uh, situation is just so fractured and polarized that to get these ecological restoration ideas is really a tall order. But I still think we need to populate them, describe them, research them, and and have a break glass in case of emergency plan for when they might become politically viable. So an idea would be, you know, the, the reason that that governments have power is because we have to pay them taxes and we pay them taxes in a currency. So yeah. it's possible that they could have a currency or a part of a currency that you earn from doing carbon sequestration or something positive ecologically in your community. And the only way you can get these dollars, these ecological dollars, is if you do some work that benefits the environment. And then mm-hmm. whoever has those dollars, that, that's how you pay your taxes. So you could have, uh, that could be at a state level or a national level where there's a project that needs to be done. And the only way that you can pay your taxes is if you contribute to that project. You know, things like that, I think, can happen in the future. And that's a way to avoid using stimulus to, to buy Tesla options or, or whatever else. That reminds me a bit of the carbon coin idea that became popularized by that Ministry for the Future book, mm-hmm. Stanley Robinson. So that seemed to get a lot of play. And what you're describing is similar. It sounds similar what he he describes in that book. It's it's similar, but the problem I had with with the idea in that book is the same problem I had with the people that uh, did the carbon bubble. Is they only look at the fossil fuels and they don't look at the indirect carbon that all the carbon in the stuff we buy at Walmart and on Amazon, there's carbon in all of that. So it's not just coal, oil, and natural gas. It's the entire freaking system. You know, I think that book did talk about needing to pair this with carbon taxes or some kind of resource tax. So maybe that's where we turn to, right? If if you're going to then inject money basically into the system that's directed towards work you want, restoring wetlands, planting forests, training people to become local organic farmers, et cetera, et cetera, insulating homes. Training people to be Jason Bradford. Oh, that is so sweet. But I'm, I'm getting older. So I want, I want young people to do this so I can relax. But anyhow, so what I say on the other side is what, how, do you, how do you take money out of the system in a way that encourages labor <laughs> and discourages, though, the consumption of these resources? Well, okay. So big picture, here's the problem. We've found this massive supply of fossil magic that has powered our goods and services, our riches, our population for the last two centuries. 
we've used a half to two thirds of it. What's remaining is both precious in what it's able to do for us, but also environmentally toxic, especially at, at these scales. Yeah. So in order to avoid facing the harsh reality of what I just described, we're creating money at an accelerating pace to avoid facing the, the bill that's been building for 50 years. So with that backdrop, I can't say what might work the next two or three years, but in the next two or three decades, we have to make non-renewables more costly. And if we make them more costly, that will do two things. Number one, it will spur conservation. And number two, it will spur innovation because those inputs will get much more expensive. So they'll want to make longer lasting products and they'll want to use more non-renewable inputs into the process. So right now we did some research, 95% of the tax burden is directly or indirectly on labor. Only 5% is on natural resources. Wow, that's incredible. So we're working on a, a project and we're teamed up with Imperial College of London to do the research. The website's called untax.org. But the idea is to, to put in a tax, not only on carbon, but on all non-renewable inputs like fossil water aquifers, sand, copper, anything that's depleting. And, you know, sand right now is in a global shortage. We're taking sand yeah. out of riverbeds because of the, you know, it's need fracking and solar and, and silicone and uh, fracking and everything. So if, if we tax natural resources and then simultaneously remove the tax on human labor, what we're doing is making labor much more attractive and spurring conservation and innovation yeah. uh, at the same time. And this is the way it used to be a couple hundred years ago, but we've moved far away from that. I think that's incredible because I, you know, things happen nowadays that just drive you crazy where I've been in places where there are cheap labor economies where like if your lawnmower breaks, you basically, you push your lawnmower to a shop, then there's somebody there who can fix it, you know, <laughs> like, and, uh, or nowadays it's, you know, it's impossible. You can't even get a part because they might, they think you're just going to scrap it and buy a new one. Well, I think this would help. This would help with planned obsolescence as well. Right. You, get rid of that. I mean, basically we've had, and, and this is the do the opposite theme again. Energy has been so unbelievably cheap, thousands of times cheaper than human labor that, We've essentially had mulligans on just about every aspect of our life. Your lawnmower yeah. breaks down, you either just buy a new one or you bring it in, get it repaired. People don't think of, I need to spend a, 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 a meaningful portion of my money on a lawnmower. Maybe it's better that I share my, loan, my neighbor's lawnmower, or maybe right. I should buy a machine that lasts me for 20 years. I mean, that that thinking is kind of been thrown out with with this era of unbelievably cheap energy. And as energy gets more expensive, which it will naturally because of a depletion, with the exception of the fact there may be a, a financial a reset at some point due to the number of claims that we've created. But as energy gets more expensive, a lot of the really energy intensive processes in the world will become 
less profitable or even unprofitable. Right. Like airlines or aluminum smelting, <clears throat> concrete creation, things like that. So what we're doing, I mean, if we can wave a magic wand and solve, quote unquote, solve this problem, what we would do is say in the year 2030, gasoline is going to be $10 a gallon. Everyone get to work and prepare for that reality. <clears throat> the reality is we couldn't do that because no one would believe that because of what's happened in politics, no one would believe that that would ever happen. So we wouldn't do anything. And then uh, December of 2029, someone would come out and say, right. no, we were kidding. But right. if, if, if energy was a lot more expensive, we would make better decisions that were aligned with our real future. Yeah. And someday, if you understand, you know, oil depletion and all this, it will get, even if it's not monetarily more expensive, but it will become harder to afford in general. So for the average person. I think it's harder to afford now. Um, it's just the stimulus is is obfuscating that fact. One of the things that's, uh, you know, that I think it makes it hard to sell this is that if you're selling, hey, tighten the belt a little bit, work a little harder, you're you're asking a population to do this who also sees such wealth inequality. And I'm wondering how important it is to figure out how to how to get a sense of social cohesion, a sense a sense of shared sacrifice and fairness back. Is there you just talked about a tax, you know, the untax, which is taxing non-renewable resources but not taxing labor. Would that help in this, or there's other things we need to do to to deal with the the wealth gap? As far as untax, we're doing research on that. It's it's unclear how that would because labor would become so much more attractive that people would want to hire people again. So I'm not sure how regressive a tax like that would be. But first of all, yes, we are approaching a Marie Antoinette moment for society. <laughs> Because so many people have been left out. And that's kind of a little bit of a biological power law that 80% of the resources just eventually funnel to 20% of the population until it breaks. I think personally, this is getting a little off topic, we will have a lot more equality in the coming decade because the rich are going to lose 90% and the poor are going to lose 30%. Oh, interesting. When the financial hit comes, but the rich will still be rich and the poor will even be poorer, just not, uh, you know, the relative divergence will, will, will narrow. But, you know, here's, you know, uh, Wes Jackson, there's a guy that works with Wes called Stan Cox. Yes. Who, uh, who j he's kind of the world expert on the concept of rationing. We might have covered that in season two, actually. So, yes. Well, he has a new book out called Any Way You Slice It. And it points out that direct rationing would be far more equitable than price rationing. In other words, the, the market signals go up and that is indirectly rationing because energy demand is highly inelastic. The total value of like carbon rationing coupons would increase as the supply decreased. And if everyone was assigned an equal ration, because of that power law um, distribution of energy use I mentioned, most people would see their incomes rise and inequality fall as we reduce the ration, which is why if people were more biophysically literate, 
such a scheme would be way easier politically to do to reduce carbon emissions. So I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, this is such a complex story that we're talking about. But, but the biggest problem I see is we're not going to be able to do anything really radical until there's a crisis. I mean, even last year, I thought that was the moment to do a crisis, but, and I was involved in that. And the discussions yeah. we had, if I would have brought up, excuse me, Mr. Congressman, Mrs. Senator, we need to do the opposite. I would have been hung up on <laughs> so it's, it's actually well, well, the opposite is when you have no other choice. But yeah. to be honest, or to be blunt, this untax idea is pretty freaking radical. And I think it would work. Yeah, I like it because it solves these problems. Like I think a lot of people realize we're over consuming resources and we need to encourage work. And this this basically handles that, but it ends up being overall your tax burden might stay the same or go down. It's just that we're we're reallocating where where the taxes come from, right? Right. And and also it gets rid of this mulligan Monty Hall sort of structure. And if you have a job and you make $50,000 a year, you now get to keep all 50,000 of that. Right. And with that, you might decide to save some, or you might decide not to buy the the iPhone that's now three or four times expensive. As expensive, you might share and collaborate with other things. It would just make, it would lead to decisions that are more aligned with reality. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's great. Well, Nate, thank you so much for coming on because this is a complex topic and I know how much you've thought about it. So we really appreciate your insight. And the, and there's a website you have, is it untax.org? Is that right? Do people can learn more about that? That's one of them, yeah. Any others you want to want to throw out there? Energyandourfuture.org. Energyandourfuture.org. Okay. You know, you should start a do the opposite.org where you would, uh, <laughs> list kind of the 10 problems that we face. Yeah. And then one day a month, like the 29th of the month, try to have ecologically pro-future people do the opposite in their own lives. Do right. have a list of things that wouldn't naturally come to them, but if they did that, it would be better for the future and better for the environment. That would be a good sort of maybe conclusion of this uh, season. We kind of pull all that together yeah. and package it. Good idea. I'll, I'll bring that. I'll bring that to a, a Robin to share. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, have a great week, Nate. Thanks so much and good talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, JB. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crazy Town. Yeah, if by some miracle you actually got something out of it, please take a minute and give us a positive rating or leave a review at your preferred podcast app. And thanks to all our listeners, supporters, and volunteers. And special thanks to our producer, Melody Travers. We've got a great new sponsor here in Crazy Town. You know, the Beatles tell you to can't buy me love. 80s movies with Patrick Dempsey tell you the same thing, but turns out you can. I know, it's all bullshit nowadays. <laughs> I mean, what I don't think people understand is how 
innovative humans are and how we solve any problem that comes in front of us, okay? And there's been a new breakthrough, and it turns out money can buy you love. That's right. With crypto love, they're mining a new currency, can buy me love. The only problem is it only works in VR, well, Jason, you've bought three virtual wives with your, your crypto love. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's good. I mean, I'm spending a little too much time with them, honestly. It's kind of affecting my, my, my real-world relationships, but it's interesting. Don't worry. Pretty soon you won't have one. <laughs> right. It's a better life. Crazy town. Da, 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 crazy town.